Welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich, conversation, a live and well conversation with creative people. And whenever this author and historian and thrill seeker shows up, well, we just have to make room for him. He's a perennial guest and a very dear friend. His name is Brad Meltzer, the author of so many incredible novels, The House of Secrets, The President's Shadow, The Fifth Assassin, many other nonfiction books such as The Lincoln Conspiracy. And his latest is a follow-up to his bestseller, The Escape Artist. We'll be talking about the new one called The Lightning Rod, featuring two unlikely heroes, Zig and Nola, and some undercover secrets that are amazing and revealed by Brad. These are absolutely true. He's done the research to back it up. A captivating fellow, as so many of you know. We love him and welcome him back. Brad Meltzer is joining us now on Mike. Brad, this is your perennial visit to the Jordan Rich Podcast. We love it when you're here. And man, this book is a sizzler. It's called The Lightning Rod. And um, it's a continuation of a story we read about a year or two ago. Tell us... The, the reason that you decided to bring these characters back. The truth is, is uh, let's talk about the setup of the book and it'll make more sense when I do it this way. So the opening of scene is based on one of my great fears. A character hands his car keys over to a valet at a fancy restaurant. Rather than just going and parking the car, the valet takes the car and he hits the GPS button on the steering wheel and he says the magic words, go home. And now he's plotting a route to the guy's house. He's got his car keys. And of course on his car ring is his, house keys. So he's going to rob this man. This is a robbery. But as he breaks into the house, he sees that there's another man waiting mm. for him with a gun. This is not a robbery at all. Jordan, you've read it. You've seen this is a trap. Yeah. And when his body, <laughs> when his body goes to a, our hero, who's a mortician, the mortician finds something on the body that no one's meant to see. It leads to one of the government's most closely guarded secrets. And for me, it's, it's this world of Zig, who's a mortician at Dover Air Force Base, that that's what I couldn't let go of. And you know, Dover's a place where all of our fallen soldiers, if you don't know the name of Dover, you've certainly seen it. It's where our fallen soldiers, when they, when they die in Afghanistan or Iraq, and their bodies will come back in those flag-covered coffins. And Dover's also a place, though, it's not just about soldiers. Our astronauts, when the space shuttle went down, their bodies went to Dover. And when 9-11 happened, all the Pentagon victims, their bodies went to Dover. And all of our spies all around the globe doing the James Bond work and the CIA, mm. their bodies go to Dover too, which means Dover is a place filled with secrets. And I love secrets. So it seemed like <laughs> a great way to set up a new book in a place that was just rich in, in government secrets. Yeah. No, I, I'm so glad that these characters are back because we really uh, grew to love them in the first one, The Escape Artist. And it's not just Zig. He's the uh, mortician, but it's also Nola Brown, who is... Well, she's the lightning rod, and uh, you even explain what a lightning rod's all about because kids today don't know those things. Lightning rod yeah. repels and attracts, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, and that's what Nola does. You know, Zig, who believes that the world is a better place if you put more kindness in it, that's how you make the world a better place, which is a beautiful idea. It's a naive idea, but it's an idea worth fighting for. And Nola has a very opposite view of the world. Nola was a former artist in residence in the, uh, in the military. And this is true. Even though the book is fiction, it's all, it's all a thriller. Nola's job, ever, since World War I, there's been an artist on staff for the military who paints disasters as they happen. Whether it's storming the beaches of Normandy, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's 9-11. And I said, you're telling me that the U.S. government has everyone's racing with guns blazing, and you've got someone who's racing in with nothing but paintbrushes in their pockets. Mm. 
that guy's crazy. I want to I want to meet that guy. And I got to meet him. And they said, you mean her. You want to meet her. Mm. And that's where Nola was born <laughs> as a character. And Nola, unlike Zig, she believes you want the world to make sense. Forget kindness. You better grab the world by the throat and force it to make sense. And yeah. it's their two views. You know, this is a book that's really about dysfunctional family. We all have dysfunctional families, Jordan. And as you know, we all then, we build our own new families. And those we are not, shouldn't be surprised, they become dysfunctional too. Mm. But it doesn't mean they can't be beautiful. So Zig will never get what he wants. He has a daughter who passed away and he'll never get his daughter back. Nola lost her father. She'll never get the father that she wants. She'll never have the family that loves her. But together, they're going to have to knit together this dysfunctional family and, and basically solve this crime that's laid out in front of them. One of the greatest dysfunctional characters that you root for is Nola's brother. I'll just leave it at that. I, I don't have to go into detail because the book is intricate and we want people to read it. But I, I do have some general questions for you, as I always do. Let's talk first of all again about Zig and about the role of the morticians and those who take so much care to prepare the bodies for the families of the fallen. And in this book, very high-ranking officer is the one who's murdered at the beginning. And you explain, and he's shot in the face and it's horrible, and you explain in graphic detail, and it's fascinating, what and how they actually work on our fallen. Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, and again, it's fascinating because it was fascinating to me. I, I speak to these people who, who prepare our fallen soldiers and they'll, they'll spend 12 hours rewiring someone's jaw mm-hmm. and smoothing it over with clay because a family wants to see their son one last time. They'll rebuild someone's hand because a mother wants to hold her son's hand one last time. And all the tricks you see in the book, I won't ruin them, but they're wild. But you see exactly how they make someone who is, you know, has most horrible war injury or, or any injury and they make it disappear like magicians. And, you know, we all think that, that morticians are there for the dead. They're not. Mm. Morticians serve the living. And Zig doesn't just, you know, want to do that stuff. He doesn't just wanna, want to help the, the fallen soldiers and their families. He needs to do it. He needs to do it. He will never have his daughter back. And, and he is therefore trying to, trying to, um, provide the one thing that is so hard to get when when someone dies close to you, but that every mortician tries to bring, which is closure. Mm. And that's what Zig is trying to bring all the families of these fallen soldiers and this and this high-ranking official is he's trying to bring them closure. And it's, of mm. course, something that's o- almost impossible to attain. Indeed. And uh, there's one other issue, and there's so much here that we could delve into, but in terms of what they do at Dover, one of the things they do for security purposes, which makes a lot of sense, but you don't think about it, is investigate the bodies coming back to see if they're booby-trapped. I love that detail, right? They mm. gave me that, and I couldn't believe it. So, yes, when a body comes back from when it was coming back from Afghanistan, Iraq, or when it's on a secret mission, a mission because the CIA sends you somewhere, they literally will run the entire body through a body scanner like you'd be at the airport, but a higher tech one that will see if there's a booby trap or a bomb a grenade, or even an IED hidden inside the body. And you only learn that lesson by learning it the wrong way, right? It has to go wrong before you realize, oh my God, this is what they did. So when I, when I was, you know, I, I spent a lot of time out at Dover and researching these morticians that, that do this kind of work. 
And it, everyone who reads the book always is like, that's the most fascinating parts of the book is, <laughs> is, is that because you know when you read that, Jordan, you know I didn't make it up. Nope. You know somewhere nope. in the back of your brain, yep. we know when we're being lied to and we know when someone's telling us a totally amazing, incredible truth. And, and yes, the book is fiction. I can make up whatever I want. It's a thriller and a whodunit. But I love when you're reading a thriller and you're, as you're reading, you learn something. Well, that's the Brad Meltzer touch. We know by now that a lot of the information is is real. It's actually happening. You have sources that uh, provide you with backup information on this stuff. And that brings us to the larger uh, big questions in the book. And pathway to justice is a twisty one. And as we find out, there are what you might call uh, warehouses, secret warehouses, not much like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, a little different. A lot of material that we need, that our soldiers need, and that we, the public needs, is locked up in these secret government warehouses. What's in these warehouses and how many are there and how did you find out about them? Yeah, this is one of my favorite details <laughs> in the book. Um, I've taken readers in my thrillers to the underground secret tunnels below the White House. I've gone into the hidden labyrinth below the U.S. Capitol. I've even done the the underground tunnels below Disney World, which mm-hmm. was a fun book. Yeah. But I never found anything like this. And for the lightning rod, um, and as you said, Noel is the right lightning rod, right? She's the one who danger always seems to find. But it, it also is in relation to this place that is a lightning rod for the government. And one of the things that I found is the government, this is true, has about a dozen secret warehouses hidden all across the country that deal with bioterror attacks, whether it's anthrax, whether it's uh, smallpox, whether it's hantavirus. They will, with if there's an attack in New York or California or Texas or Boston, within hours they will have they will have a uh, a push package of antidotes that will come right to you within a couple hours. And I said to them, you're telling me the government has secret warehouses hidden all across the country. No one knows what's inside. No one can go in there. I want to go inside, <laughs> right? I want to know what's in there. Of course. And so when you get to the, the final scenes of the lightning rod, you'll see where the killer is revealed. You'll see their identity revealed. It's in one of these secret warehouses where those final scenes take place. And what I love is, is that what you see in those warehouses, I didn't make it up. That's what's really there. And ventilators. We've heard so much about ventilators in the last two years. And, uh, you know, no one kind of knows where they're coming from when the government says we're going to send you ventilators. But, I mean, all this stuff. And is it secret anymore? You write about it, but people now know about it, obviously. Yeah. You know, I, I started researching the Lightning Rob five years ago. Mm-hmm. And when I was researching it, nobody cared about these warehouses. They were like an asterisk to the government. They were, they, you know, they're kind of Costco's, giant, massive Costco's for the end of the world. And when COVID hit, I suddenly called my sources and I said, wait a minute, this is you guys? And they're like, this is us. And these places became the most important places in the world because I knew that they had ventilators in there. I know what, what kind of mass they have there. I knew all the stuff they have there and don't have there. And it was pretty amazing to watch. One of them said to me, we got caught with our pants down. And I said, why? You know, you have this thing. You know, the reason that the warehouses exist is back, obviously, in the 60s and uh, in the 50s and 60s, we were worried about one threat, Jordan. It was right. nuclear war. Right. Nuclear war was the threat. It's the end of the world. The government tried to figure out how we're going to survive a nuclear war. So they commissioned a secret project called uh, Project um, High Point, mm-hmm. which was to study – what happens to the president? What do we do with the president? Like, where do we put him? How does the government 
government continued, that first continuity of government exercise. And what they figured out is they started building Mount Weather. They started building all these secret places to take care of, of the president, the Senate, the Congress, make sure you know we, the government can continue. And that was Project High Point. But they also realized, what about the rest of us? If there's a nuclear war and the end of the world comes, what about the rest of us? And they commissioned Project Low Point. Project Low Point was not, not in D.C., but was in Michigan, of all places, in, in an old sanitarium, hmm. if, if, you know, if the metaphor isn't perfect <laughs> enough. And what they figured out is you know, they had whole plans in place if, if, if there was a nuclear war. They, mail trucks would become um, places that would carry around bodies. They would be like hearses instead of delivering mail. You, you wouldn't deliver mail anymore. You'd deliver dead bodies on a mail truck because we had so many of them, they were everywhere. And they had this whole plan, Project Low Point, and then they figured out one thing, none of it's going to work. We're all going to die if there's a nuclear war. It doesn't matter if you're hiding under your desk. That's why we stopped doing those ridiculous exercises in schools is because it's not going to save you at all. Right. You remember and the movie- They stopped doing them the until day. the 90s. You remember the movie The Day After in the early 80s with Jason Robards? Oh, it scared the crap out of me. scared the crap out of everybody. And, and I think that was the first time as- en masse, people realized, this is silly. We're, we're not going to survive this ever. Another aspect of these places, these hidden bases, if you will, is the amount of blood stored for soldiers, for troops in battle, I guess, right? Uh, hundreds, thousands of pints of blood, apparently. Yeah. Listen, if, there's, if you have a battalion that has a disaster, mm-hmm. where do you get blood to repair them? Guess who has the storehouses to hold them? So, these warehouses aren't just for the end of the world, but they hold other things that are important too. The same way that, you know, years ago in Fort Knox, when they were worried, um, they brought the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to Fort Knox. The government knows they have these places to be hidden. So yes, our military's blood, it's a, it's a giant blood bank that can store blood for soldiers if anything happens. So when I, you know, listen, as a thriller writer, my job is to always imagine the worst case scenario. Right. I, I, sure. I from that from that scene I told you at the beginning with the valet to anything else, whenever that's me at every valet stand for the past years of my life. I'm a thrill at parties. My kids love me. <laughs> I'm just constantly imagining the worst thing that could happen. But the reality was um, when you tell me that the government did exactly the same and said, listen, we need to be prepared in case the end of the world comes. And they realized, you know, it's not going to be a terror attack that's going to come from nuclear war. It's going to be bioterror. They actually started preparing for it. Mm. And that's why when anthrax hit after 9-11 in Washington, D.C. and in New York City, it didn't spread everywhere because these were the people that were on top of it. it. I mean, it was one of the few times where the government, we know today, you know, in Washington, D.C., a snow, you know, if it snows, the government can't handle a snow day. Right. But it was reassuring to me that they prepared for the end of the world and their plans actually worked. Obviously, COVID was, you know, a whole different you know, mess and of uh, you know truly biblical proportions, but I I felt it. I was like when I saw what they had in there, um, and you know it was blood, and they have you know um, you know blankets and and obvious things, but also have like radiological burn treatments. They have um, they have cobra venom. God knows what you would need mm. cobra venom for, but they have that there too. They have all these amazing things, and I thought as a thriller writer this is a place where you want to set a scene. This is where you want to have your characters running and exploring. We're talking with our good friend, and I mean that in capital letters, Brad Meltzer. He and I have known each other for well over 20, 25 years now, and 
I've followed every single book and can't wait for the next one, and we have a great time getting together. Another issue that you raise, the veracity of this, something called the blackout zone or the black zone or the black zoom or in other words black house black black house, black house. i'm sorry i couldn't read my writing this was was this actually something that started during the nixon days this idea of having a network of communication that went far above and beyond and was so secretive nobody could crack it i'll tell you how i found this one <laughs> so this is a true story this is crazy I, I was basically talking to a friend of mine who used to work at one of the high did, uh, one of the high security agencies, acronym security agencies, mm-hmm. that does security for the government. And I said to him, "How do we? How do you send secret messages anymore in a world where everyone can read our email? Nothing's secret anymore. So what do you do in your agency?" And he explained to me, "You're entirely right." He said, "He said, you know, the moment you hit send on an email." Whether you use WhatsApp, whether you use Signal, whatever you hit, send them. The moment it enters cyberspace, anyone who wants to crack that with a good de-encryption program will crack it. So he said, here's the trick you need. You're going to get a Hotmail account. You're going to, on that Hotmail account, open up an email and, and write your email that you want to send. But don't hit send. Instead, hit save draft. And then you're going to give me the login credentials to log into the account. I'm going to log into your account. I'm going to open up your drafts folder. And I'm going to read what you wrote. I'm going to erase it. I'm going to write something back to you. I'm not going to hit send either. I'm going to hit save draft. And now you and I are having a conversation privately. We've never sent a single syllable into cyberspace and no one can track it. It's a great trick until General Petraeus, the former head of the CIA, (laughs) used that trick that's in our book, The Lightning Rod. He used that trick to cheat on his wife uh, and, and with his mistress. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me i'm like i said to my buddy i said that's a trick you you gave me yeah he just used it he said, i'll give you a better one <laughs> so the better one you see um is what you see is black house and the idea came from the uh the idea that richard nixon when he was back in the white house obviously taped his conversations it made every single staffer suddenly go oh my gosh how do we possibly speak and not be taped how do you have a conversation behind right. the president's back so there's a White House, but now there's what's called a Black House, a place, and I make up the I made up the name, but a place where, but this is true, where people can have private conversations. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, rumored with George Stephanopoulos did it in one of the, the local gyms by or near the White House. I, Dick Cheney maybe did it in his man-sized safe that he had there. God knows where he picked his. But every White House has a place where they know they won't be listened to and won't be eavesdropped on. And I won't ruin how they do the trick in the book, but. The one you see there is a really, really fun one. Thanks for thanks for elucidating that. It's fascinating, absolutely. And I'm I'm a, a man of imagination, and I see so many movies and read so many books. And I've got to ask you this: of all the books I've ever read, of all the movies I've ever seen, and this is going to sound a little disgusting, but I'm going to go for it anyway. You've got a scene where a murder takes place. Somebody is garroted, which is a horrible way to go. And you actually define and determine the blood spatter story. Most people think that the blood of somebody who's being strangled like that would spurt out like a geyser, and you put that to rest, which begs the question, are you Dexter or what? what, Yeah, no, I'm not that. What I am is I'm a thorough researcher. Yeah, I know. And so I I went to my police buddies and said, I want to get the scene right. If someone cuts your throat, we all, you know, we've seen how many horror movies where you see blood spatter and it's like gushing out. And it's all, I don't do gore. I don't like gore. Mm. I don't respond to gore. I don't like reading gore. So I said, tell me how to do it correctly. 
And they explained to me it doesn't do that at all. It pulses with your heartbeat. As your heartbeat goes boom, boom, it comes out until it's gone. And it's not a geyser. It's not a fountain. Right. It's a human body, and it works in a very consistent way. And yeah. I love the fact that we can get rid of that nonsense score and show you scientifically something that to me is far more interesting. You know, the best story to me always is the true story. And yes, I know it's fiction. I know it's a thriller. And again, I can make up all the nonsense I want, but I, I love getting those details right. Getting back to Zig, who's our hero, uh, along with our heroine, Nola. Getting back to Zig, he is based on an individual, at least partly, correct? He's actually, he's, there's no one that's him, but he's based on a number of people that I met there, mm-hmm. different attributes, and but he's named after a real person. There is a real name, Zig. Uh, Zig is, there is a real Zig by name. Mm-hmm. And there's a woman named Amy Brown was the old artist in residence. And I named Nola Brown after her. And there were thank yous to the two of them. Both were just so helpful in the process of researching the books. I wanted to honor them by naming them and giving them those names. So getting back to the artist, I'm jumping around here, but we talked about this during the first run with the escape artist. She, in this case, would be, let's say, involved in um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan because that was a military adventure, not a very happy one. Or would she be involved in uh, major battle zones? And you said paintbrushes. You're not lying. This is what they do. They actually sketch or paint or draw what they see, not just take photographs. And what was fascinating to me and what the real Amy Brown told me is um, you go where you want to go. It's what you find interesting. You know, everyone's probably thinking right now, well, why, just bring a photo, a photographer, bring a camera, you'll get the picture. Why do we have a painter? Mm-hmm. But as it was explained to me is, you know, a photographer can capture one second. It's a true one second. It's exactly what happens in that one second. But what a painter can do is merge two minutes together and show you the horror of what's happening as someone pulls the trigger and the horror of what's happening as someone gets hit by a bullet. They can show you the look in someone's eyes that they saw in you know the 10 minutes after that when they realize what the damage that's been done. Mm. And basically, as they explained to me, what a painter does is a painter tells a story. A photographer captures a moment, but a painter tells a story. But as for where they go, it's up to the artist in residence. So Nola Brown you know, in real life, the artist in residence went to the closed down of Afghanistan, wanted to see how we were throwing away 500 comp- computers and burying them rather than shipping them anywhere and destroying them. Just found it fascinating mm. just to, to leave a country, what we leave behind and what it looks like when we, when we walk away. That was what she found fascinating. There are other artists who go right into the battlefield they can go wherever they want. They have unreal clearance that lets them go. If you want to, they were on the front lines of 9-11 when 9-11 happens. Um, the, again, storming the beaches of Normandy. Wherever the danger is, they can run right to it. And that, to me, is one of the most fascinating characters. How could I not base my main character and, about her? And That's a character, if you're not patriotic when you hear that story, if you don't think about valor and what they're doing, they're not carrying guns, they're carrying paintbrushes, but they're they're fulfilling a, a duty, a purpose. It's just, it's just awe-inspiring. Hey, I've got to ask you about one more set of characters, the Reds. Now, these are your, <laughs> these are your uh, hired thugs, and they are delicious. And I, I know you had to have fun creating these two, uh, Brad. I love the Reds. I do love the Reds. They are, they are two redheads. <laughs> and um, this, is, this is no research involved. This is yeah. me just having fun and saying, I want the best villains I can find. They both have red hair. So people call them the reds. They know it's a stupid name, but they're like, man, even in the business of killing, 
marketing matters and everyone remembers their name and and they are i won't ruin what why they're tied together or what their secrets are but my gosh did i love writing them. they I, I just kind of took over every single <laughs> i could tell even knowing you enough uh, knowing your work i could tell this was this was just sure pleasure just coming up with these guys now a couple of more things before we close out and uh, let you go off on your merry way uncovering more secrets the last three years and certainly the last, yeah, the last three years, and I'm counting where we are today as we record this, have been tumultuous to say the least with uh, with the pandemic and now with the Russian incursion, which is more than an incursion. It's a gosh darn invasion of the worst order. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that gets a lot of us thinking and rather frightened. What's your take on just the state of the world right now? Is it more dangerous today than it was six months ago because of what's happening? Uh, listen, anytime you have an authoritarian power thinking that they can control how the world runs, it's more dangerous. I talked to my buddy, uh, Alexander Vinman, to ask him, I said, listen, we have these warehouses here to hold all this stuff in case there's a disaster. Does the Ukraine have that? And he explained to me that, you know, of course, any good country will have a, a stockpile of, of things, but they already blew through it. Because the stockpile is made for a rainy day, but it's not made for a full-out war, much less a prolonged one like we're seeing right now. Um, and, I, and I think the one lesson I take, you know, I always think if you want to see what the future brings, you got to look to the past. And we've seen in the past what happens when, you, when, when people suddenly start annexing countries and taking them over. It, it's, not, it, it's never good. The one thing that I take, though, as a moment of hope, Jordan, is I didn't think when this started – that the United States in our short attention span and the way every news story lasts for one day and then we're on to the next disaster, I didn't think that anyone would care about the Ukraine three days after that war started. I just thought they're just going to mm. be fatigued. It's going to be done and people are going to move on. They shouldn't, but I just thought that's just the way we're going to be. And I love the fact that as Americans, so many of us, Democrat and Republican, it's the only thing Democrats and Republicans agree on True. right now. And I'm, you know, and I'm not talking about the far, far lunatic sides of these. You know, I'm talking about like, Democrats and Republicans have finally been brought together because one thing that's great about America is when we see someone being picked on, we hate a bully. When we see some wrong like that, and we may have our own issues and who we vote for, and I know that you know we've certainly had them, but I love the fact that everyone knows that what's happening in Ukraine is wrong, and we're determined to make sure that we help these people who need our help so badly. And I think you know if, they, if World War II taught us anything, um, you cannot be silent. So if you're thinking about a donation, if you're thinking about helping, if you're thinking about even just writing a check, whatever you are volunteering, please, please let this be the message that says, go do it, go help however you can. Right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and as we discover, thanks to the cell phone war that we're in, new technologies that we didn't even know either the Russians had and didn't do well with or the Ukrainians are using to their advantage. It's, I don't like to say fascinating, like it's a good thing, but it's sure darn interesting to know that you can stop a Russian invasion of tanks with drones, at least slow them down. I mean, these are things that, this is a new kind of war, obviously. We've heard that expression before, but. Well, yeah, because we haven't had, listen, we've been lucky enough um, that we, even though we've been at war for, you know, 20 years now in Afghanistan and Iraq, but it's not like this. Um, and, and each war brings its own technology, steps forward, its own learning and leaps and bounds. Every single war brings like a new um, tactic. And, you know, one of the things that they learned, one of the things that we learned in Afghanistan and Iraq is they figured out, you know, who's going to figure out 
how to find IEDs, like these, you know, these, these booby traps that are hidden under the ground. And you think like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to get all this technology. We're going to get all this stuff. But the thing that they found was some of the people that were the best at it, it wasn't the military people. It was kids from the inner city, mm. kids from the inner city. They figured out were the best at just seeing and knowing when something's just amiss because that's how they live, right? They have to live on that edge where like, whether it's a police coming or a gang coming or something bad coming, they can kind of feel that that molecular shift mm. in the atmosphere to know something's off. And those were the ones who were the best at seeing something's off here. I just got a vibe. Mm. That's and each time it's fascinating. But yeah. that's you know, and we're seeing all those things now as as technology bounces forward, how they can fight back. Well, it's it's interesting. It ties in directly with the artists that we've been talking about. It's it's the human touch. It's like the Navajo code uh, talkers during the World War II era. Everything we came up with, we turned to the Native Americans who had been on our soil for thousands of years, probably, to come up with a way to defeat the enemy. Fascinating all the way around. What's your next project? Uh, and do you have to kill me if you tell me? That's the question. Well, naturally, but I'll whisper it to you. Um, no, I will tell you anything. So, you know, we just came out with it. You know, we do a set of kids books you and I have talked about. Oh, in, addition gosh, to yes. mur- in, in addition to murdering people on a daily basis, I also do children's books, which yeah. is the perfect segue to talk about these children's books um, as our past conversation. But we just came out with, you know, we, we did these line of books to give my kids better heroes to look up to. And we did I'm Amelia Earhart and I'm Abraham Lincoln and I am Rosa Parks. But the newest kids' books that just came out uh, two weeks ago is we did I Am Malala Yousafzai, the youngest girl, youngest person ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize, fought against the Taliban when they said that she should never go to school. She fought back and made sure not just that she got an education, but that girls around the world did. And we also did I Am Muhammad Ali, one of my favorites we've ever done, Mm. whose message on the back of the book says, "I I will fight for what I believe. And I want my daughter to have that lesson. I want my sons to have that lesson that they will fight for what they believe. So the next project um, we're doing, I am in the, I am ordinary people change the world series. We're doing, I am, I am pay the great architect. Oh, very nice. Uh, yeah. And with that will come in June. I am Dolly Parton. And we're talking about like 25, 26 already. Something like yeah, that. Dolly, I am, I am Dolly Parton. I think is number 26, maybe even, yeah, I think number 26 <laughs> in the series. So we're having fun with them. And then, you know what? I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it to you after that in September. I can't, I never say this anywhere, but you will understand why I'm telling you. Okay. Um, the ordinary people change the world series expands to the stories change the world series. Uh, and we're teaming up with DC comics. We're doing, I am Superman thank and you. I am Batman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I know the, the story of Superman. It gives me chills every time I think about it. The backstory and, and the fictional story. Uh, you and I are big fans and big proponents, and we will always be that way. My friend, I know this is uh, the tail end of your tour. You always re- leave room for me. I appreciate that. There's always room in my heart and on my broadcast for you as well. And I am just tickled. The, the new book is great. It's called The Lightning Rod. Terrific follow-up to the first one, The Escape Artist, and you will love it. Brad, thank you as always. God bless you and your family. You too. God bless. Thanks so much for being my pal all these decades. Oh, so much fun to have our good friend Brad stop by. Go to bradmeltzer.com for all the details. The Lightning Rod, the newest book, a must read for sure. Thanks as always to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to everyone at Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce this and many other podcasts. And now we're working on a slew of audiobooks as well. Speaking of books, mine is available in audio format. It's called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. And all proceeds from the sale of the book, the ebook, and the audiobook 
go to Children's Hospital in Boston. Details on all of this and more at jordanrich.com. Till next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.